Hello, it's Kirsty Styles here, back in the presenting seat covering for Aisha on this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast. If you've been listening for a while, you'll have heard us talk quite a bit about the climate crisis. It's a crisis after all, uh, and we've discussed everything from funding a Green New Deal to the future of the climate movement. With the postponed COP26 Global Climate Conference coming up later this year in Glasgow, we're spending five episodes this series looking at some of the biggest climate issues facing us all today. In this episode, we're going to be finding out what exactly a just transition means and what it might look like. I remember being amazed how far behind West Germany it was with their funny uh, two-stroke engine cars and their, and their fake uh, coffee. So that to, to use a football metaphor, the approach has always been uh, to hang around the goalmouth uh, rather than being the playmaker. If you saw me, I'm not, I'm not a great expert on football, but you get the general drift uh, of what I'm trying to say. The most important factor in levelling up, the yeast the lifts, uh, the whole mattress of dough, the, the magic sauce, the ketchup of ketchup. Last week, the Prime Minister, I'm sure you know him, travelled to Coventry to set out his post-pandemic vision for this country. It was anticipated as a flagship moment for the government's levelling up agenda, but critics decried the speech as all talk, no action. This trip came a month after the Committee on Climate Change, the CCC, said that the UK is facing a similar problem when it comes to achieving our net zero targets. Lots of ambition, but lacking a detailed plan for how to get there. And I'm currently sat in my pants, I don't know about you, after the Met Office's first ever extreme heat warning for the UK. This report makes very clear that this is a government that is strong on warm words, but very weak on delivery. And that's the trouble, because the Prime Minister will bandy around the latest targets that he's adopted. But the trouble is, if you don't have the policies to deliver those targets, they're essentially meaningless. This defining year for the UK's climate credentials has been marred by uncertainty and delay. The policy is just not there. We continue to blunder into high carbon choices. And the chair of the committee, Lord Deben, when asked to give the government marks out of 10 for policy, said somewhere below four. And all that we can hear is words and promises, and none of that is enough. And one of the main things that we need to do is start acting on those promises. Net zero is a lovely phrase to uh, dish out, um, but actually what we really need to see is urgent action. So of course, We need more action on tackling inequality and the climate crisis. But can we do both at the same time? How do we ensure communities aren't left behind in the move to a low carbon economy? And what does a successful green transition actually look like for workers in high carbon industries? Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. In this episode, we're asking, how can we tackle the climate crisis while levelling up? no pressure. I'm Kirsty Stiles, recording this podcast from my bedroom in my lonely student bed sit in Liverpool. Here we go again. This week, I'm pleased to be joined down the line by Luke Murphy, Head of the Environmental Justice Commission and Associate Director at the Institute for Public Policy Research, IPPR. Hello, Luke. Tell us about where you're working from today. Hi, Kirsty. Thanks for having me on. I'm in a baking study in uh, my house in South London, and it's, um, it's really more like a sauna. I hear you, yes. <laughs> um, I'm also very pleased to be joined down the line by Rebecca Diskey, Senior Researcher at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Rebecca. Are you basking in or hiding from the sun today? Hi, Kirsty. Um, yeah, I am also also sweltering. I'm very glad that this is a podcast and not a video interview so that you don't have to see me 
regularly mopping my brow, but lovely to be here. Thought you were going to say in your pants. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with the basics. Uh, We heard in the intro that the Prime Minister made a speech on his plan to level up the country. Luke, what does levelling up mean? I have to say it most to me, it's what happens when you complete a level on a video game. Um, But I'm sure there's more to it than that. Well, I think you've already come up with a kind of tighter definition than I think the Prime Minister has. I think one thing that was clear from Boris Johnson's speech last week at the moment is that it's it's a slogan in search of an agenda. You know, we were hoping to hear a kind of clearly articulated plan for what it might actually mean for different communities across the country. And actually, we got a kind of fairly amorphous description and no real policy content. I mean, I think for us at IPPR, and I'm sure for colleagues at NEF as well, that actually levelling up should be used as an opportunity to tackle deep inequalities across the country, to create the conditions for good life for everyone wherever they live. And fundamental to any strategy for levelling up has got to be devolving extensive power across the country. So to level up, the government have got to let go. But I think the government's plans fall quite somewhere short of that at the moment. So was there was there any policy involved? Any real announcements made? To be honest, I don't think there was. I mean, there was a kind of hint that the agenda might link to crime policy, to different parts of economic policy, education. But actually, it was a speech that was largely absent of any detail. And as I said, certainly what we want to see is much greater devolution extensively across the country. We've got to see, you know, the government provide the necessary state investment to local authorities and combined authorities across the country to support the new powers that are devolved. And that's got to include, you know, powers over transport to control commuter rail and refranchise buses that give them the ability to invest in skills and jobs. And then, you know, relating to the kind of the core as you set out in your introduction, actually devolving powers to tackle the climate and nature crises. Because if there's one thing we know, one size fits all isn't going to work when it comes to tackling wider inequalities or tackling challenges in our transport system. It goes the same for the climate and nature crises as well. Every area faces very different challenges and they need to be empowered to tackle the challenges in their own area. But at the moment, while the Prime Minister talked the talk, there was very little detail or ideas of how the government actually planned to do that. You know, I think the jury is out and it's a slightly sceptical one at the moment as to whether that's what we're going to see in the levelling up white paper later in the year. So, Rebecca, you've um, written that climate action and levelling up, if we can call it that, don't have to be incompatible. You think that workers and communities actually must be involved in how we move forward here. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I I think if by levelling up we're talking about reducing inequality, and that's both between regions and within them, then yes, that is absolutely compatible with climate action. There's huge potential to create hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs in the low carbon economy, while also improving people's well-being and outcomes. And that's both through making sure that those jobs are well paid and secure and accessible to everyone so that people don't have to struggle in low paid and precarious work, but also through the activities of those new jobs themselves. So eradicating fuel poverty through a national retrofitting program that saves energy while making sure everyone lives in warm, dry homes or nature restoration work that both sucks in carbon and gives people greater access to green space, or improving public transport and walking and cycling infrastructure so that people can affordably and safely travel to work, access services, or just to see their family and friends. Um, And in fact, investing in those public services themselves, which actually also provide low-carbon jobs, that's jobs in health and care and education and other sectors that sustain life. Um, And the pandemic has really underlined how important and undervalued those jobs are. So it makes sense, obviously, to invest 
in areas that have seen long-term deindustrialization and underinvestment, partly because many of those places, we're talking about you know, the north of England, the Midlands, northwest Scotland or the Welsh Valleys. A lot of those places are places where many of the remaining good jobs are still in carbon intensive industries, which are likely to change or potentially disappear if we're to meet our climate targets. But I would say if inequality and climate action are going to be tackled together, I think we need to acknowledge a couple of things. One is that climate action is more than just a business opportunity. Decades of climate inaction have shown that we really just can't leave it to the private sector to sort out. That means being honest about which industries are able to decarbonize and which just need to be phased out. And of course, that comes with provisions um, to support workers in those industries through a just transition, which I, which I know we'll get onto. But a lot of the talk around levelling up so far, you know, I agree with Luke that it has been mainly talk, is based almost entirely on a boom in technological solutions to the climate crisis. So, and that's really become a kind of site of massive corporate greenwashing. And I know you had an episode on this a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go on about it. But essentially, you get many of the big companies that have played a massive role in getting us into this mess positioning themselves as having the solutions, which conveniently for them allow them to pretty much keep doing what they're doing for as long as possible. So, you know, for example, you have a lot of excitement about investing in hydrogen as an alternative fuel in places where we have a lot of heavy industry. The problem is that the cheapest and most common process of producing hydrogen actually uses fossil gas, which is why a lot of gas companies are keen on it, funnily enough. Another one's carbon capture and storage, where you capture the carbon produced by a factory or a power plant and then store it underground. But those projects are really expensive, have a really patchy history of success elsewhere in the world and take years to get off the ground. And we know that we've really got to reduce the vast majority of our emissions this decade. So betting on technologies that may or may not materialize in the 2030s and 40s is a real risk. And the consequences of that strategy not working are irreversible. I'm not saying there's no role for technology. There clearly is. So yes, we should invest in and support jobs in green steel, in wind turbine and electric vehicle manufacture, to name a few. And that government should intervene to ensure that those are good quality jobs. And that's really important. And it's something that kind of often gets missed off the wish list here. But technology is not the only answer. And at the moment, it's being promoted as a way to sustain our current polluting activities and the system that they kind of prop up when what we really need to do is transform the system itself. You know, I really think if we lock ourselves into those industries, certain industries, by tying them to hugely expensive and often unproven technological paths, if those paths don't deliver on their climate ambition, you then have a whole load of jobs that potentially face even more of a cliff edge. So it's not a good deal for workers either. And, you know, the reason I've gone into that slightly technical wormhole um, when you asked about levelling up is that if you leave really complex and you know, not inherently profitable endeavours like addressing inequality and addressing the climate crisis to private business, you're going to get solutions that are much more interested in protecting existing business models and profits than on doing what's actually necessary to lift people out of poverty or to drastically cut emissions now. So that's to say, I, you know, I absolutely think they are compatible, but the way we're going, um, the compatibility is not necessarily assured. As a former tech journalist, I've said it and I'll say it again, technology will not save us. But in this instance, uh, by the power of technology, I know that Luke wants to come back on that. So, Luke, do you want to add something? Yeah, thanks. And I would agree with more or less with everything that Rebecca said. And I think, interestingly, as part of our work, um, which I know we're going to come to, is the Environmental Justice Commission. We we held citizens' juries across the country and we held one in Tees Valley and County Durham. And the reason we held it there, like in the other areas, is because it's an area that will face particular challenges as a result of the transition, as well as, you know, potentially having quite a lot of opportunities, which again, Rebecca spoke about. But interestingly, you know, in an area where 
there is a lot of carbon intensive industry. Their industrial emissions are three times the national average. It's one of the reasons why we went there. And where actually a lot of the government's focus is on some of those technological solutions that Rebecca highlighted. Actually, the jury there were quite sceptical about it. And we had a really long debate with the citizens there. And while it wasn't kind of totally universal, they came to the conclusion that actually, yes, things like carbon capture and storage have a role, but they want to see it used as a last resort, not as the first kind of plan of action. They want to see you know, demand reduction. They want to see tackling emissions at source rather than relying on rather hopeful, optimistic predictions of what technology might be able to do. So I think there's actually a lot of common ground and actually that the public don't want to see us kind of over um, over investing or putting too much faith in these kind of technological solutions. So I would agree with that. And I think the second thing, just to add on the business side, as I thought it was really interesting is that the people that we worked with, they saw a big role for business in addressing the transition, in tackling it. They wanted to see government provide support and incentives to those businesses that were doing the right thing. But as Rebecca said, there's actually a fair few that are looking to try and do things business as usual. And actually, they wanted to see those businesses penalised. They wanted to see you know stricter regulations and penalties put in place for those that aren't doing enough. And that was kind of universal, really, across all of the juries. So yes, businesses have got a role to play, but it can't be as an excuse to kind of continue business as usual. They really do want to see them making a genuine contribution, albeit with a great deal of leadership from national government, as well as local uh, and regional government as well. And um, Rebecca, you did drop the key word, which was uh, which was just transition. So can you just give us an idea of what that might look like as an alternative to some of the more terrifying scenarios that you've just described? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's tricky because just transition does have, you know, a number of different definitions. And it, you know, it came out of the labor movement in the US in the 70s and 80s, where it focused on the impact of particular industrial processes on workers' health and safety and the wider environment in which those workers and their communities lived. It's really morphed since then um, and, and has variously been used to describe a process to protect the livelihoods of people in high carbon industries in a move to a low carbon economy or much more broadly as making sure the transition kind of generally is fair at every level and the costs aren't borne by any one group, particularly those least able to afford it. Within the labour movement, it's usually thought of specifically in relation to jobs. And I think it's fair to say it has a pretty patchy reputation within unions. Firstly, a lot of union members aren't really familiar with the term or are sceptical that it's, it's essentially code for job losses. And that's understandable because we don't really have a good example of a just transition in this country to point to. So when you ask me, you know, what would it look like? I think all I would say is that what definitely has to happen is it has to happen you know, with and for workers and communities rather than to them. And, you know, that's something that we don't have a brilliant history of in this country. There are lots of examples of unjust transitions, most famously, you know, the crushing of the miners' strike and the closure of the coal mines, which, you know, I think in the middle of last century employed about 700,000 people, but is now, you know, kind of a couple of thousand people you know and actually that was repeated all over the country in, in various different industries you know, steel shipbuilding other manufacturing and that wasn't because of climate change but it was because it was cheaper to rely on labor and materials from abroad and there was very very little support for the workers and communities who relied on those jobs there were lots of lessons to learn both from how you know from unjust transitions of the past and from places that have done it more successfully recently so canada germany spain have all had recent processes to phase out coal and unions have been really central to that. So I, you know, I think I really want to stress that the labour movement is really crucial here. And in those 
examples, they have secured some really impressive wins in terms of compensation and retraining packages for workers and commitments to invest in the regions affected. And I'd, I'd say that those are all ingredients, uncontroversial ingredients of a just transition. But it really is a process rather than an outcome. And it absolutely needs to be informed by the people who are the most impacted. And I think there's a real risk of that not happening again. We're seeing some movement new with the Green Jobs Task Force, which the government set up and has got union representation on it. And they've proposed a kind of just transition body and funding, which will be locally distributed so that regional bodies and local bodies can actually sort of set up their own just transition plans. And that's something that NEF has argued for in the past. But we haven't had the government response to that. And, you know, they're kind of long-standing relationship with unions and the long-standing position of unions in this country tells us that without a lot of work and without you know really concerted effort a transition that really centers justice is not kind of the first concern for the government and so I think it really needs to be hammered home. I know that NEF research has shown that the number of jobs at risk in the aviation industry, it could be on par with the scale of the job losses during the pit closures. And obviously, we know that those uh, sort of changes managed badly can, um, you know, echo and echo and echo in communities. Luke, we can probably all remember scenes from France from a few years ago, the Gilets Jaunes, you know, workers experiencing some of the changes that we've been talking about. Are there things that we can learn from movements like that? Do you think, uh, you know, how to do things better? I think there definitely are. And I think Rebecca kind of struck upon the the key thing there, and that's ensuring that whether it's workers or the local communities or indeed the people involved, that they are active parts of the conversation. They have control over some of the decisions that are taking. And I think one of the key lessons is that if you go about this transition without thinking about fairness or justice, then it is set to fail. I mean, one of the things that our chairs said, the cross-party chairs of our commission, Caroline Lucas, Hilary Benn and Laura Sands, they had this phrase that, you know, the public have a veto over net zero. And what they mean by that is that if we go about this transition in a way that doesn't involve people, where we just, I mean, as Rebecca said earlier, you know, we try and kind of just back technological solutions and we don't ground it in the concerns that people have in their everyday lives they will vote it down in an election and put a stop to it. And I think that's the key lesson from Gilles Jean's is that not enough or indeed any thought was really put into the impact it was going to have on people's everyday lives. And that's what we found from the juries we held across the country. We asked, what does a fair response to the climate and nature crisis look like for your area? There were three key insights that came from the people that we spoke to. First of all, the idea, we called it a people's dividend. We've got to do more than just mitigate the worst of the transition. As Rebecca was, was saying, we've actually got to create fundamental opportunities and improve our economy and society as a whole. So we have people's lives have got to get better as a result of the transition. That could be in terms of job creation, good quality jobs across the country. It could be in terms of direct dividend payments to the public, you know, uh, in terms of recycling kind of carbon taxation, uh, if the government goes down that route, or just broader improvements in people's well-being, access to nature, cleaner air and things like that. We've got to guarantee that that happens. Second of all, a fairness lock. Like It could not have been clearer from every single jury, and it was unanimous in every single one, that you know those on low incomes must not lose out through this transition. They cannot be penalised. And actually, they've got to see benefits. We know that the transition is, is changing. What we do now is going to change you know, how people heat their homes, how they get to work. And for some people, as we've talked about, the jobs that they do, and therefore it's got to be fair. And it's also got to involve people. Rebecca, again, said 
the key thing is we've got to move from a position where we're doing things to people to something that's being done with and by them. That's something that's absolutely crucial. And then, you know, there's something that didn't happen for the Gilets jaunes. And if we want to succeed in the transition, then we definitely need to learn those lessons and make sure it's kind of, yeah, it's fair that people are put at the heart of it and actually that they see the benefits and opportunities and that they're fairly spread across the country. So you've mentioned a couple of times, Luke, the Environmental Justice Commission. You're the head of it, so I'm not surprised, and the report as well. Can you just give us a quick uh, overview? You mentioned a couple of the key actors, but for those who don't know what the Environmental Justice Commission is, you know, what is your brief and what you've been doing? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, so <laughs> giving it a good plug wherever I can. Um, so the commission was set up a couple of years ago, really, with the core of the commission being that actually action to address the climate and nature crisis mustn't just be about that alone. It must be about tackling wider economic and social injustice. And we brought together those politicians I mentioned earlier from the Green Party, Conservatives and the Labour Party as well, and also representatives from campaigners and and the activist movement. So people like Fatima from the Green New Deal campaign, Paul Novak and Beth Farhat from the uh, Trade Unions Congress, as well as representatives from business. So like Steve Waygood from from Mediva uh, and a number of other organisations and academics as well. And we wanted to bring together and see, can we develop a plan that meets the scale of action that's required to tackle these crises, but also that delivers on fairness and justice as well. And over the course of that, we held as well as the normal things that people might expect to think tank to do, hold roundtables and produce reports and do research on issues from a fair transition in transport to a warfare transition or just transition for the oil and gas industry looks like. We also held these four citizens' juries across the country, working with citizens in those areas, Aberdeenshire, Tees Valley, uh, South Wales Valleys and Thurrock, to understand what a fair transition looks like. And then we drew on their insight, produced reports from them with their ideas and their recommendations, and then drew on it to create the final report of the commission, which kind of sets out over 110 uh, recommendations for what we think a fair transition looks like from Things like a call for uh, the investment to expand public transport, ensuring it's free at the point of use, to the things like fairness lock, the devolution of extensive powers, how we can go about restoring nature across the country as well. And that was out last week. I think the key thing for us is really just about in the process, we put people at the heart of it. And that's what NEF has been doing in its work as well in terms of workers, but thus far has been quite lacking from the government in that regard. One of the really stark things that you found, even though we might think, you know, green jobs, what are they? Uh, You actually found that almost all of the people that you spoke to in high carbon jobs said that they would consider moving to a low carbon job if they had the right support. What exactly do you think that would look like if it was a just transition? So similar to some of the things that NEF has been calling for and indeed what Rebecca mentioned there around the green jobs task force is the idea of a just transition body. We've called it a net zero and just transition delivery body, a really kind of uh, great acronym as well as rather long um, name. But the point is that we need something that's set about coordinating the transition and is actually genuinely focused on a fair transition and has representatives from workers and trade unions in particular. And uh, we would have things like a green training fund. So the government should provide funding to support people, uh, workers to transition, to skill up, because actually a lot of these workers actually have the skills or some of the skills they need for some of the low carbon jobs, but they just need that extra bit of training and support to do that. And, you know, we argue, like many others, that They shouldn't have to pay for that themselves. They do need the support in order to be able to do that. So one of the key things we call for is a funded right to retrain. So people actually have an allocated amount of money in order to be able to train up for jobs in the low carbon economy and for all businesses, particularly those in the high carbon intensive sectors to work with government to develop what we've called fair transition plans 
to figure out, okay, who needs reskilling, what needs to happen, what kind of support is needed, and actually to create a plan for their workforce and ensuring that the workforce are involved in that, the creation of that plan as well, which is obviously something which is crucial to its success. And I have to say the report and the commission's work gives an optimistic, you know, a positive message when we're baking in this sort of heat, it might not feel easy to put across. Do you think that's, you know, going to be important when it comes to the changes that we're going to have to make to our, you know, lives, jobs over over the coming years? I do. And I think, to be honest, it's something that really came through really strongly from the people that we spoke to in, in all the areas across the country. They they weren't kind of shy about being clear about what the problems were, both potential problems in terms of the transition. And this is in, in no way trying to mask both the future threats of the climate and nature crises, but also the ones that are already with us and are, are you know, clearly having devastating impacts all around the world. So it's not at any point trying to shy away from that, but it's actually recognising that there are lots of opportunities in this transition. And if we are going under such a fundamental reorganisation of our economic model, why wouldn't we use it as an opportunity to improve people's well-being, to tackle economic and social injustice across the country. And actually, the people we spoke to saw that. They were really optimistic and they they wanted to use the assets of people and local communities, but also whether it be existing industrial assets or natural assets, you know, in Tees Valley and County Durham or, or Aberdeenshire um, or any of the other areas, you know, they wanted to use them to help tackle the crises. They were optimistic about the benefits that could be created, but they were clear that, they wanted a greater say, a greater control over the transition, and they wanted the government to take greater leadership as well. So they were very optimistic about that. And I think we tried to communicate that as well, partly because I think if people aren't optimistic about that there are benefits to the transition, that it can improve their everyday lives, you know, would potentially lead to kind of apathy and uh, it will be a harder challenge to tackle it. So the overwhelming message of optimism was really drawn from the juries that we spoke to. And I know, Luke, you spoke to people living in Aberdeen because it's the oil and the gas and the golf course capital of the UK. Um, Rebecca, you've been working on a project with high carbon workers in Yorkshire and the Humber, which is actually where I was born, just as a side note. Um, Can you tell us why uh, you focus on this particular region? Yeah, sure. So Yorkshire and Humber, like Aberdeenshire and a lot of other kind of industrial clusters, is one of the regions in the UK that um, both has a very strong and proud history of industry and and of work in industry and you know those jobs have obviously been hugely important in powering British economic prosperity and you know keeping the lights on across the country so there's clearly a kind of really strong identity with some of those jobs um, in in Yorkshire and the Humber many of the good jobs as I said earlier still actually remain in those high carbon industries even you know though there has been huge deindustrialization over the last kind of three, four decades. So it's still the second highest um, producer of industrial emissions in the UK. We found that 360,000 workers, so that's 15% of all jobs in Yorkshire and Humber, are in high emissions industries. And when I say high emissions industries, I'm talking mainly about the power sector, steel, glass, cement, chemicals, oil refining. That doesn't mean that those 360,000 workers necessarily are all out of a job. At all, you know, some of those industries really are able to decarbonize and should, and, and, and need a lot of support to do so. So, you know, we looked at three case studies. One was steel, Liberty Steel, which has been in the news a lot because of its financial troubles, it employs two thousand people um, in Yorkshire, and Scunthorpe is the single, I think, highest emitter in the in the region, and really needs huge support from the government to intervene and to support 
decarbonizing. And it's possible to decarbonize steel. We've seen it. I um, mean, you know, Sweden is the leader in this, but it's difficult. It's expensive. And you know, it won't happen on its own. The other case study we looked at was aviation. Um, and you, you mentioned the risk to jobs there. And that's not just climate change. It's also you know, a long-standing trend in automation in a lot of aviation jobs, which means that the employment intensity, so that's you know, the, the number of jobs per kind of activity has shrunk. There are kind of fewer jobs because of automation and that's not going anywhere. And then you also have the impact of COVID. And um, I think the industry bodies predicted that even without kind of taking climate change into account, passenger numbers are very unlikely to return to 2019 levels, I think, for at least until the, the middle of this decade. So, you know, all of those um, things are kind of conspiring to make people in the aviation industry very vulnerable. And, you know, they absolutely need support to retrain, to be compensated. I fully support IPPR's the, the Environmental Justice Commission's idea of a right to re- funded right to retrain. I think the funded bit is really important. Um, you know, I think that workers should get time off and paid time off to retrain. Um, the third case study we looked at was public transport, which is a kind of completely different context where actually, you know, I'd argue that public transport jobs are green jobs already. And there could be many more of them and they could be better. You know, that I think the average bus driver in Yorkshire earns about £10 an hour. And the state of local routes in Yorkshire and Humber is, is really perilous. It means that it's very hard to get around if you don't own a car. And you know, many more jobs could be created, both in the running of the public transport system and in the manufacturing of low carbon vehicles. And again, that's an opportunity that at the moment is being missed out on. So all of this needs kind of government, both regional and national to kind of grip it and to, you know, to have a kind of strategy above it that means that, you know, just transition is kind of sown throughout industrial strategy. And that's what everyone I interviewed um, in Yorkshire and Humber said. And and the thing that came through the strongest, I suppose, from workers was that they really just felt like green jobs and just transition were very, very abstract concepts. No one was talking to them about them and they just didn't have trust that this time was going to be different. You know, people regularly told me about, um, how strong in their memories or in their experience and their kind of psyches, the closure of the coal pits and factories um, in the you know, 70s, 80s onwards. And that's really scarring. And it's going to take a lot of confidence building to persuade people that this time could be different. And the way that, you know, that persuasion has to happen is both the creation of jobs, of good green jobs, you know, that instead of just talking abstractly about them, but also like really workable, practical and funded routes into them for people that appeal to people and that mean something and that you know, mean something to their communities. And that so far is, is what's lacking. And you've mentioned a couple of places that seem to have achieved this just transition. Can you tell us anything about what Canada, what Germany, what Sweden have done? So all those things that you've just said, trust, confidence, you know, this time can be different. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say to start off, I don't, you know, I don't think that any of those examples do offer a perfect example. So, I, you know, I, sh- I should say that there's a, there's a big caveat there, um, but they are miles ahead in terms of what they've actually done on the ground. So all of those places, um, Germany, Canada and um, Spain, which have all had just transition commissions or similar bodies, mainly focusing on specific regions and mainly focusing on, on the phase out of coal in particular, because there are regions in each of those economies that have relied really heavily on coal. And the thing that is present in all of those cases is firstly, a very different relationship between um, unions and companies and governments. In Germany, you have, you have workers on the board of businesses and you, know, you have a much kind of stronger history of unions being involved in really important industrial decision making right at the top level and that well we haven't seen that here and 
as Luke said, without the participation of workers and their representatives in trade unions, you're not going to get the support that you need in the broader community for the extent of the changes that we we need to see so you know we can learn from there that you know that that's absolutely essential and you know one thing I, I would argue needs to happen is actually amending our trade union legislation to give unions more of a role in, in industrial strategy and more kind of levers in terms of action to push business and government to you know act in the interests of their workers um, at the moment that is lacking and that's because of sort of you know deliberate effort over the last 40 years to kind of crush union power. So Luke, just to bring the conversation to a close and to revisit that idea of levelling up, you know, we know that there are plenty of potential new jobs in the industries of the future or indeed the industries of of the now, uh, like renewable energy. But if high carbon jobs are in Yorkshire, uh, um, being replaced with low carbon jobs in Surrey or wherever, that doesn't help workers that have lost out, does it? No, absolutely. And I think that's the crucial thing. And you can ally these agendas but it does need concerted support from government it does mean devolving power and it does mean that we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach and we've got to make sure that we're not just yes that we're kind of supporting those in high carbon intensive industries to shift to low carbon intensive industries but you know not just we're providing them the skills but the investment is there to create jobs in their local area and local communities and also ensuring that you know the wider economy and the wider community is able to thrive as well um, we've got to look after the the workers that are transitioning as well as the communities that depend on many of those industries so yeah the agendas of leveling up and just transition and tackling the climate and nature crisis definitely can be allied but this isn't something that's going to happen by accident as Rebecca said you can't just leave these things to the market it re- requires a concerted government strategy to actually deliver and I think it's fair to say that we're still we're still waiting for one. And Rebecca just finally so speaking from an emotional perspective you've been you know on the ground in proud places like Yorkshire and the Humber do you think that we can create a kind of new pride again you know about places becoming the home of renewable power the home of green steel or or whatever? Yeah absolutely I think I think the potential's there I think you know um, people take pride in their work when it's valued and you know so if the jobs of the past, you know, in coal mining, for example, you know, people took pride in those because those jobs were providing a, an absolutely crucial uh, service to the rest of the country. And, you know, that applies across industry. Similarly, the jobs of, of now and the future, whether that's um, in the, you know, the thousands of jobs, hundreds of thousands of jobs that could be created in the social services or whether it's in the more traditional kind of green jobs in nature recovery and uh, renewable energy. You know, those are are obviously really socially valuable jobs and they need to be paid as such and they need to you know people need to be trained properly to do them and to be given good terms and conditions so that they they feel valued and they and they can kind of you know, fulfill their potential so absolutely i think that the potential is there it just does depend on what government does next oh i love all these words being valued and you know having confidence and all these things that we have the potential to make happen here that's all that we've got time for this week on the weekly economics podcast but luke first up thank you so much for joining me if people want to find out more about your work where can they go what should they read they can go to ippr's website and we kind of host lots of the reports from the environmental justice commission there we've we've got no fewer than three outputs all for those with different appetites the seventy thousand words full report a ten thousand word summary if you can call a summary there's ten thousand words a summary and also a shorter digital report but they can find all of that on our website and Rebecca Disky, many thanks to you for joining me as well. If people want to uh, find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? 
Yeah, you can also go on the um, New Economics Foundation website where the report that we wrote recently on Yorkshire and Humber, the Just Transition, is up there along with lots of other reports um, that are very relevant and also follow NEF on Twitter. Well, that's it for today's weekly economics podcast. We'll be back soon as ever with more economics goodness uh, for you good people. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. Thank you, Margaret. I'm Kirsty Styles. Stay safe. Stay cool.